Hey, this is Pastor Chris Jane, and I want to thank you for listening to the Hope Church Sermon of the Week. For more information, check out our website, brhope.church. I hope this message is a blessing to you. Enjoy. So to recap, and just to, uh, for those of you who haven't been here, we as a church have been going through the book of Mark, verse by verse, start to finish, um, not quite the way that they would have heard it back in um, the first century. You know, they would have heard it told as a story, right, from beginning to end. And Mark, I think, really is meant to be heard that way. It is like an action movie version of the life of Jesus. It's one awesome story right into the next. And for those that uh, had heard it that way, I think over the last few weeks, they would have seen this theme, you know, and, and basically what Jesus has been doing uh, is establishing his dominion and authority over everything, right? We saw him calm a storm with, a, with, a, uh, with just a word. He just commands a storm to be still. He's displaying his authority over the natural realm. The week after that, we, we see him cast thousands of demons out of a man who'd been suffering and tormented and who was hopeless. We see Jesus establishing his authority over the spiritual realm. And last time, we, uh, we saw Jesus heal a, a woman who had uh, been suffering for 12 years. We see his authority established over the physical body. And then he raises Jairus' daughter from the dead, showing his authority even over death itself. And so he's doing all of this through the power of faith. And that's what we're going to talk about today. I mean, bout after bout, round after round, he's, he's winning uh, because of this powerful faith and connection he has with the Father. Essentially what he's doing is he's demonstrating for us what our lives are supposed to look like, right? <laughs> He's the Son of God is demonstrating what the Son of Man is supposed to be doing when we're in right standing with the Father, right? So today we're going to see these two worlds of, of faith and unbelief collide in Mark chapter 6. If you have your Bibles, you can, you can open. We're going to start right at the beginning of Mark chapter 6. And we're going to see faith go toe-to-toe with fear. And as powerful as faith is, Fear, don't kid yourself, fear is very powerful. When he calmed the storm, what did he say to the disciples? Why are you afraid? Have you no faith? When he cast the demons out, the people were afraid. You know, they saw the man sitting next to Jesus in his right mind. He's fully clothed, and they were terrified, amazed. When he heals the woman with the issue of blood, she comes to him trembling with fear. And then when Jairus has been told his daughter's dead, what does he say? He says, don't be afraid, just believe. All right, so two kingdoms. That's where we pick up the story, Mark chapter 6. Faith and fear collide. And you've got you've to get the context here because this is Jesus' second visit to his hometown. Okay, in Luke, I think, 4, they... they show us the first time, and it was just after Jesus had been out in, he had uh, been baptized, and he goes out into the desert for 40 days, um, where, he, where he was tempted, and he, and tested, and, you know, Satan was trying to get him to second guess his identity with all sorts of lies, which is basically the same thing he does to you every day, right? But Jesus fights him with the truth, with the word of God, and, 
because uh, he's rightly connected to the Father. He puts away all those lies, and he comes out in the power of the Spirit, right? And so he goes to his hometown. He walks in the temple. They hand him the scroll, which happens to be Isaiah. He opens it up, and he reads, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me because he has anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to proclaim freedom for the prisoners and recovery of sight for the blind, to set the oppressed free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Then he rolls the thing up. He sits down, and he says, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. And they, as you can imagine, they marveled. <laughs> the Bible says, no one had ever said, oh, yeah, this part of the Bible, that's, that's happening right now. I, I'm it. You know, it's pretty bold. And uh, so then Jesus goes on. He says, surely you will quote this proverb to me. Physician, heal yourself. And you'll tell me, do here in your hometown what we've heard that you did in Capernaum. Truly I tell you, he continued, no prophet is accepted in his hometown. I assure you that there were many widows in Israel and Elijah's time when the sky was shut for three and a half years and there was a severe famine throughout the land. Yet Elijah was not sent to any of them, but to a widow in Zarephath in the region of Sidon. And there were many in Israel with leprosy in the time of Elisha the prophet, and yet not one of them was cleansed, only Naaman the Syrian. So basically he's saying, uh, just like you rejected those prophets, God sent them to your enemies. I mean, you know, the Sidonese, the Syrians, these are people that the Jews would despise, so naturally they're furious, right? And they, they actually lose it, and they, they want to put him to death. They drive him out to the edge of town. You remember this story? They're going to stone him to death, but Jesus, calm, cool, collected as always, it says he just walks away through the crowd, you know, this mob that wants to tear him apart. He's just like, yeah, not today. So then he goes to Capernaum where he does all these fantastic things. You know what I mean? And that's the stories that they're hearing. You know what I mean? Most of these things that we've talked about have taken place in Capernaum. Uh, so the word's out. You know, he's doing all this stuff. And so his mom and brothers go to get him, right? And he's, he's in the room. He's, he's with people. They're sitting around at his feet, and he's teaching them all sorts of amazing things. And they come and say, hey, your, your mom and your brothers are here. And I, I mean, were they there like to warn him, like, hey, you're in danger? Or were they like, he's lost his mind? You know what I mean? I'm not really sure, but Jesus says this, says this real shocking thing. He's like, who's my mother? Who are my brothers? You, know, you are. You know. So that'll put a, a, a little bit of tension at Thanksgiving dinner, right? <laughs> right? So now he's coming home to, to that, right? And uh, that's what we're walking into in Mark chapter 6. All that stuff has happened. And uh, I also love when they say something like, you know, oh, he couldn't do many miracles. He just healed a few people who were sick. And I was like, well, I'll take that. Man, that's like, we call that like an, a miracle Sunday. Uh, anyway, only Jesus. Um, and again, he, he's gonna, he, he marvels at their unbelief. He's not mad. He doesn't seem angry. He's just, he's, he, he marvels. The only time you see him marvel, you see him marvel twice. He marveled at the faith of the centurion, remember, who wasn't even, a, wasn't even a, a Jew, but believed that if Jesus would just say a word, that his servant miles away would instantly be healed. And he marveled. And now he's marveling, unfortunately, at his own hometown's lack of, lack of faith. It's like I told you last week, when we miss it, you know, when we have an opportunity to do good or to you know, you feel like you're supposed to say something to someone or pray for somebody and you miss it. God's not, he's not mad at you. He's not like us. 
You know, he's forever believing the best of you. He's forever thinking the best of you. He's like a little league dad. Remember I told you last week, your kid misses. You're not like, oh, you idiot. You're like, don't worry about it, buddy. Shake it off. You get the next one. You got the next one. That's God forever believing we're going to get the next one. Amen? That's just a little something to pick you up this morning. So you can see that uh, the home, these hometown folks are still stuck in this, like, place of, like, natural thinking and unbelief. You know, they're, they're stuck on that. Bill Johnson says it really well. He's, he says, uh, unbelief is anchored in what is visible or reasonable apart from God. Okay, it honors the natural realm as superior to the invisible. The Apostle Paul states that what you can see is temporal and what you can't see is eternal. So it's unbelief is faith in the inferior. And, and I would add, fear is faith in the devil's plan for your life. All right? So let me open this up. If you've got your Bibles, Mark 6. I'm going to bounce around a little bit, but... Um, we're going to keep coming back to this. So it says, Afterward, Jesus left Capernaum and returned with his disciples to Nazareth, his hometown. On the Sabbath, he went into the synagogue. Everyone who heard his teaching was overwhelmed with astonishment. They said among themselves, What incredible wisdom has been given to him? Where did he receive such profound insights? And what mighty miracles flow through his hands? Isn't this Mary's son, the carpenter? the brother of Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simon? And don't his sisters all live here in Nazareth? So confidence in the, in the seen is sort of where they were stuck. Jesus is trying to teach them about the unseen. They're kind of hung up on the scene, right? That's kind of where they're at. So I want to go through these questions that they ask and unpack them a little bit because uh, there's some historical reasons why they're asking these things. So the first one was, where did this man get these things, right? So, I mean, because bottom line, he's from a small, no-name town, no renown, no significance, small population. Archaeologists uh, depict Nazareth as a 60-acre uh, plot of ground that has all of these um, grottos that were built into the hillside. Um, you know, so he's not from New York. He's not from L.A. He's not from a, a you know, a fancy place. He... How can he possibly be this prestigious, this influential, when he's from a place like that? So that's, so that's the first thing. Even if you remember when Philip went to get uh, Nathaniel, remember what he said? He's like, you know, uh, we found the one Moses wrote about. You know, it's uh, Jesus of Nazareth, the, the son of Joseph. And uh, Nathaniel basically has the same opinion as these folks. He's like, Nazareth? Can anything good come from there? And what's funny is Philip doesn't even have like a comeback. He's just like, well, come see. <laughs> he doesn't even say, like, hey, careful. That's, you know, there's a lot of nice folks there. He, he's just like, well, I, I hear you, but come and see anyway. The second question is, what is this wisdom given to him? I mean, th he's got no famous mentor or teacher. You know what I mean? He's, he didn't go to Harvard or Yale or anything like that. Um, you know, where's he getting this stuff? His, he's not the son of a high priest. Um, there's no human explanation, right, as to why he's so well-educated, so full of wisdom, so full of understanding, so full of this supernatural power. It just, it doesn't make sense. But, I mean, we, we saw this all the way back when he was a kid. You know, he was 12 years old. Um, the story's in Luke chapter 2 where, um, you know, they went, as was their custom, they went to, the, the, uh, to Jerusalem and um, they, on their way back, they realized they'd lost Jesus, right? When they were a day's journey away, 
they realized, uh, you know, they, they don't know where Jesus is. And I can cut them a little bit of slack because you've got to think, you know, they were, they were traveling with the, their whole family, you know, big family. It was a big group. And you know how nice it is when you've got a bunch of kids, when, like, one of your relatives takes one. And you're like, oh, good, I don't, I don't have to worry about. They probably just thought Jesus was with, like, his aunts and uncles or something like that. But, you know, they uh, had to feel, I mean, Mary had to feel pretty guilty. I mean, she's got one job to do. <laughs> you know, she's, she's lost the Messiah. Yeah. You know, just as a pause, if you find in your life's journey that you've forgotten Jesus, go back and get him and then continue on your life's journey. That's just a free tip. Thank you. So after three days, they finally find him. And I, I feel like... Um, I feel like this is almost foreshadowing the grave for Mary. You know what I mean? She's got to have been just like racked with guilt, you know. Um, and when they finally find Jesus, you guys know the story. He says, you know I have to be about my father's business, right? I can just imagine after being racked with the guilt and grief of losing her son to see him brutally beaten the way that he was, to see him utterly forsaken by his friends and his family, see the shame, the reputation, all the hopes and, and of all these people shattered by that moment of his, of his death, all the angst. And then to see him walk up to her after three days and say, woman, Mary, you know I had to be about my father's business, right? I feel like this moment was foreshadowing this, was preparing her for this, because it's like, you know, Jesus might be dead, but three days later he has risen from the grave and defeated hell, death, and sin, right? So in Luke, I want to read a little bit of this to you. I'm jumping over to Luke 2. And it uh, starts in verse 46. It says, After being separated from him for three days, because I want you to see how even then at 12. This is even before, like 13 is like the age of accountability in, in their culture. So he's just a child. And it says, after being separated from him for three days, they finally found him in the temple, sitting among the Jewish teachers, listening to them and asking questions. All who heard Jesus speak were astounded at his intelligent understanding of all that was being discussed and at his wise answers to their questions. You know, you can tell by someone's questions Right, how sometimes their intelligence, you know, just by the questions they ask, how deep their understanding is, and and I think even at twelve, people were like, "Where is he getting this stuff?" And again, it's not in the natural; it's in the supernatural. So the Nazareth hometown folks aren't getting it; they aren't seeing it. And the next question they ask is, "How are such mighty works done by his hands? Is this not the carpenter?" And you know, Jesus worked a common trade, which. The Greeks, they kind of looked down at the common trades, but in Jewish culture, I mean, this was a good living. Um, but their question was just essentially, you know, he's nothing extraordinary. He's just one of us. You know, he's, he's the regular carpenter like us. And in those times, you know, I always pictured him, you know, working with wood, but really more likely he was a stonemason. They, if you've seen pictures of the air. There's not a lot of trees, but uh, they do have a lot of stones, and uh, so chances are they, that him and his father, they would work the stones to build houses for, for the people in that climate. And uh, 
there's just no way he can do these things with the upbringing he's had. You know, I mean, he's just regular people. He's just, he's just simple folk. One of the commentaries on this passage says this. It says, humanity wants something other than what God gives. Humanity wants something other than what God gives. The greatest obstacle to faith is not the failure of God to act, but the unwillingness of the human heart to accept the God that condescends to us as just a carpenter, the son of Mary. What I love about Jesus and what you'll notice, you know, as you've been walking with the Lord, as you walk with the Lord, he takes the form that tailors to humility. He takes the form that bends the ear of the spiritually connected, not the physically connected. And because of Nazareth's bent towards seeing instead of the unseen, the Messiah walks right by and they don't even know it. This is actually the expression of Scripture. It says God actually resists the proud but gives grace to the humble. So even the form that the Lord will take will only be seen by the humble and the spiritually connected. So Jesus, if all the people are looking for an elderly statesman, someone of renown, uh, he'll actually come into the room as a, as a child. You know, if they're looking for someone who's rich and wealthy and powerful and influential, he'll come in as a bum, you know. He's always asking us to lower ourselves, even in our approach to, toward him, in a humble manner, which will actually set aside everything that's respected in man's eye, but will actually position us for something greater in the place of a servant instead of the king. That's what's so beautiful about the transfiguration. If you remember that story, he takes Peter, James, and John, and they actually see him transformed into what, you know, his, the real thing. You know? And I think the only reason they were allowed to go is they had, they had gotten a, grap, a grasp on Jesus as servant. So they were able to see him as king. I think that's the only way for us as well. 1 Corinthians, I'm going to read this to you. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 26. It says, I mean, this is, he's saying, Brothers and sisters, consider who you were when God called you to salvation. Not many of you were wise scholars, by human standards, nor were many of you in positions of power. Not many of you were considered the elite when you answered God's call. But God chose those whom the world considers foolish to shame those who think they are wise. And God chose the puny and powerless to shame the high and mighty. He chose the lowly, the laughable in the world's eyes, nobodies, so that he would shame the somebodies. For he chose what is regarded as insignificant in order to supersede what is regarded as prominent so that there would be no place for prideful boasting in God's presence. He does this on purpose over and over and over again. The next question they ask, isn't this Mary's son, the carpenter, the brother of Jacob, Joseph, Judah, and Simon, and don't his sisters all live here in Nazareth? Now, this is a strange question. It's very uncommon in, in Jewish culture to say about someone isn't this the son of his mother? And what I think's happening here is people are still talking about Mary. There's still rumors going on about Mary and about how Jesus was conceived in the first place. It's a lot easier to assume he was the product of an affair than a supernatural deposit. Um, 
And so I think they're trying to discredit his, you know, what's going on by saying, we know, we know who this guy is. We know his mom. Like his, even his birth wasn't legitimate. You know, how can, how can this stuff he's saying be legitimate? You know, how, how can he have any authority when he, his, his birth, you know, still, you know, wasn't even, wasn't right. So the result of all this is, as you, as you read in the next line, they took offense. Big surprise. <laughs> it says, uh, and they took offense at him. So Jesus says to him, a prophet is treated with honor everywhere except his own hometown among his relatives and in his own house. It says he was unable to do any great miracle in Nazareth except to heal a few sick people by laying his hands upon him. Again, I would, I mean, I'd, I'd love that. I'll take it. And he was amazed at the depth of their unbelief. So those closest to Jesus couldn't get past their own natural senses and their human reason, and they missed the very presence of the Messiah. And this happens every single day. It happens in your homes. It happens at your workplaces. It happens on the streets. Um, you know, every day people can't get past their human reasoning, and they miss the Messiah. They're stuck in a state of pride uh, and unbelief. And I wish they knew that Jesus is as close as their lips. If they would just utter a prayer, he would he would reveal himself to them. I mean, you got to ask humbly. But I mean, he's He's that close. The scripture says this in uh, 1 Corinthians 2.14, but the natural man does not receive the things of the Spirit of God, for they are foolishness to him. Nor can he know them because they are spiritually discerned. So I think that the kingdom that you're most aware of is the one you're going to walk in. So unbelief in Nazareth rears its ugly head and actually wins around and this entire town rejects Jesus because of their state of focusing on the seen instead of the unseen. So the natural question I'm brought to is, how do I make sure that I stay in a place of faith? You know, how do I make sure that I don't put all of my stock in the seen? Uh, how can I make sure that the that the seen that I keep the seen inferior to the unseen? How do I make sure that I walk in faith? Um, you know, and a greater question for some of you is, what is faith? You know, what are we even talking about here? I would explain it this way. The function of faith is to pull the reality of God's world into ours. Faith is given superiority to the unseen. The natural is actually inferior to the spiritual. Or the seen is subject to the unseen because the unseen actually gave birth to the seen. Okay, you moms in the room kind of know what I'm talking about here. When your child messes up and you say, boy, I brought you into this world... That's right. This is what the writer of Hebrews is talking about in 11.3 when he says, By faith we understand that the universe was created by the word of God so that what is seen was not made out of the things that are visible. See, this is an expression of faith, you know, what is seen. God used his own equation. He's got his own tools. It's, it's what he's inviting us into. He used faith in the very beginning. There was nothing, and through faith he spoke, and there was something. That which was not, he spoke as though it was. There was darkness, and he thought, there should be light. And he spoke, and there's light. There should be land, and there's land, right? The unseen gave birth to the seen. Therefore, the seen is subservient to the unseen. 
Faith is actually a higher level of sight than the natural eye because it came out of the unseen. And now I have natural sight, but it's to serve the mother or to serve where it came from, to serve the unseen. Does that make sense? I feel like I'm saying seen and unseen a lot of times. Stick with me. Unseen is forever, okay? Faith is superior to what is seen because it's temporary. 2 Corinthians 4.18, Paul writes, While we do not look at the things which are seen, but at the things which are not seen. For the things which are seen are temporary, but the things which are not seen are eternal. So if you're someone who understands that the unseen gave birth to the seen, where would you invest your time and your money and your uh, thoughts and your resources and your study? You know, if, if uh, I've got an 80-year account that will reap me benefits and dividends for 80 years, or I've got an account that will reap me benefits and rewards for eternity. Where am I going to put my money? Scripture says our lives are but a vapor, right? Just a drop, you know, in, in, kind of in the context of how vast the ocean is. That's the place that we live. That's where our thoughts, our ideas, our dreams, and our faith come from, the unseen realm. We aren't limited to the 80 years. That's not the box that we live in. You know, although I have this body, this, this flesh, and, you know, this is a vehicle to, to exercise the privilege to walk out faith. The exercise that I'm in is actually the same exercise we, we see the Father do in the beginning. And now we're all having the opportunity to engage in that faith every day, and he wouldn't rob you of that opportunity. You get what I'm saying? If he tailored, or I put it this way, if he tailored to your eyes, and that was the only way that you believed then he'd actually be appealing to your flesh, right? However, if he speaks to you through your ears, then he's actually appealing to your spirit because faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. He's bypassing your flesh so he can engage your spirit. But because he's only appealed to your ears and not your eyes, you're now in a position to believe in the unseen because you didn't see it with your eyes, you heard it, and now you have to believe it. It's this beautiful privilege that the Lord has invited us into. It's like now, because I've heard and then read the Scripture, I can step into exercising faith. And that's faith in things that are unseen, that are more powerful. I mean, if you must see to believe, then your faith is based in, in the carnal or temporal ability, that you know, being sight, which will pass away. True believing is rooted in faith, putting confidence in the unseen, thus making your spirit eternal because it's fixed in an unseen world. It's good preaching. Yes, thank you. Thank you. I'll, I'll take that. Uh, spiritual sight is a higher form of seeing. Essentially, faith gives your heart vision, okay? Your, your heart can do far more than any natural thinking because that's where hope is birthed, right? That's where faith is birthed. That's where love is birthed is in that place of the heart, of the spirit. Faith is proof of a biblical conviction. Hebrews 11.1 1 says, Now faith is the assurance, the confirmation, the title deed of things hoped for and the proof of things not seen, the conviction of their reality. Faith comprehends as fact what cannot be experienced by the natural senses. Gentlemen, faith is like the clutch on a sports car. Ladies, I'll talk to you in a minute. But guys, hear me out. Let's say you, you, you know, 
not the, the biggest car guy, but you've got a, a five-liter, eight-cylinder, 412-horse, vroom, vroom, vroom. It's harnessing the, the fire. That's like heaven, right? That, that engine, that's like heaven. That's all that potential. My life is like the accelerator. Vroom, vroom, vroom. I get to decide how much is, is put into that. But the clutch has to be engaged, right? You can rev that thing up, get it up to me. You know, and it feels good. It, it's rumbling. You're feeling pretty good about it. But if it's sitting there in neutral, what's going to happen? Nothing. But you pop that clutch and you lay an inch thick layer of rubber across that asphalt, you can take your key and write your name in it. You know what I mean? Faith is like the clutch. All right, ladies. Faith is like shopping. Now, hear, hear me out. If you find me beaten up outside because all the guys in here said, hey, you told my wife faith is like shopping. Now she says she's out there doing all these acts of faith with my credit card. <laughs> Hear me out. So imagine you're looking through a catalog and you find an outfit that would just, it's perfect for you. It's beautiful. Someone buys it for you as a gift, which is nice. Amen. It gets delivered. You open it up and it's nothing like the picture. You know, you wanted this beautiful uh, piece of clothing, and what you actually got was this sort of ratty, tatted thing. So what do you You go to the store and you say, uh, this that I received was not what was intended, and I'd like to exchange this thing that I received for the, th for the thing that, I, that I'm supposed to have. And they say, I, I'd be happy to help you. Do you have a receipt? Yes, I, I, I do. I have the gift receipt right here. That's what actually gives you the authority to, you know, the, the proof of ownership of the, of the thing that you were intended to have. So I own the right to that thing that I had ordered, the, the right thing. So that catalog, let's say that's heaven. It's all the possibilities. It's everything you could have. That old ratty garment is the unredeemed life that, that we were living in. That garment that was ordered was the, was the life that Jesus actually bought and paid for, for you. And that receipt is that, is that proof of ownership, that, that he paid the price. You get where I'm going. So, so shopping is like faith. Faith is like shopping. So ladies, go have faith. When we lay hands on someone, that's, that's faith. That's like me popping the clutch. You know, it's that, that action is proof of my conviction that, that my Father loves me and that He hears me when I pray, not based on my merit or anything I've done, but, but because of the price Jesus paid for me. And, it's, and so you guys are people of faith. When you come to church, that's an act of faith. You say, I want to grow closer to my Father. I'm going to come together with other believers and my... my Love will grow, my faith will grow, my knowledge of him will grow. Coming to church is an act of faith. When you come to the altar for prayer, that's an act of faith that you believe that the impossible can happen. Every step you take towards the altar, you're putting into action that conviction that you believe that God can do miracles and that he loves you and wants to do a miracle for you. You're stepping out saying, 
I believe that the impossible in the, in the seen is, is, is possible in the unseen. You live in the realm of faith because you're a son or daughter of righteousness purchased through Jesus Christ. When you pray before a meal, you know, when you, when you, uh, when you tithe, you know, that's an act of faith. You're believing that you're storing up reward in heaven. You're believing that all those promises for the tither are, will be true in your life. That's an act of faith. When you forgive somebody, that's an act of faith because you know it's the right thing to do. What I need you to get is that you too can actually have dominion and power over every realm. You can have dominion over the physical body because of faith. You can have uh, dominion and power over the spiritual realm, the demonic, all of that stuff by faith. Why? You're like, I don't know. I mean, that sounds like stuff pastors do or like maybe cool deacons do that kind of stuff. But, you know, I, I don't really believe that I can cast out demons or heal sick bodies. The Bible tells us that we are seated in heaven, right? Jesus said, we're the body of Christ. You're the body of Christ. You're seated in heaven. So even if your part of the body of Christ is the skin on the bottom of the big toe, even if that's your position in, in, in the body, the lowest one possible, you are seated in heaven. You're the body of Christ, so you're still way above all other principalities. You get what I'm saying, right? Even if you're the toe, like the, the, the nail on the pinky toe, and nobody cares about the pinky toe, you're still, right? You are still far above any realms, dominions. You've got authority over all of it just through faith. So how does faith grow? Faith comes by hearing and hearing by the word of God. So hearing engages you, it positions you, it, it postures you to actually engage your faith. Because again, if he appealed to your sight, it would disqualify you from actually acting in faith, right? Because it's, it's greater to believe in faith than to see with the natural eye. Hebrews 11 says hearing, you know, faith comes by hearing. That it's a constant state of relationship. It's not something you heard 10 years ago. It's hearing. It's what you're, what you're saying to yourself. Like the woman with the issue of blood, she kept saying, if I make it to him, I'll be healed. She's building that faith that reaped a reward, reaped a harvest uh, that was her miracle. So how do we activate faith? If you're taking notes, you may want to write this down. It's complicated. It's one step. Just do it. Just do it. All right? What happens so much is like this stalemate between God and I. I'll be like, God, was that you? Well, give me a sign and I'll step out in faith. Right? I mean, sound familiar? And God's on his throne and he says, sure, I'll show you a sign just as soon as you step out in faith. Stalemate. Remember the water that he turned to wine? When did it turn to wine? Not when he said, take this to the master. It wasn't even when he touched it. It was when they poured it out. It's that act of faith that, that triggered that, that miracle. It's the moment that you stretch your hands out to pray. You know, it's, it's the action that signifies, hey, that guy believes. So the only way to actually see the results of your faith, faith is, to, is to actually do it. Um, if you remember 
the demon-possessed boy. The, the disciples tried to cast the demon out. They couldn't, and so they had to call Jesus in. And, and Jesus said, why is your faith so small? That word, small, it actually, in another interpretation, says brief. Why was your faith so brief? Right? So it's like as you... Your faith isn't just based on what you hear this morning. It's what you've heard you're, over the years, over the, you know, maybe you're going through a, a period of like two years where your faith has been building for something and, and, you know, storing it up for some massive harvest. Bill Johnson says that faith is the currency of heaven. You heard this? This is what we use to access heaven and have heaven deposit something in us that we need for us and through us, not based on our merit or what we've done, but completely and utterly based on the righteousness and cost that Jesus paid for us to become sons and daughters of the Most High God. We pray with me. Dear Heavenly Father, we love you so much. I, I pray that, that faith would begin to rise in the hearts of everyone in this room, that, that we would not allow um, our confidence in, in what is seen to be superior to our, our faith and our trust, that we, would, that we would continually surround ourselves with, with faith, with positivity, with you know, hearing your word and your promises. We wouldn't allow uh, anything else to, to get in. We would just begin to build that faith. And Father, I just pray for each person in this room that, that they would take that next step of faith. If, if they've never put their trust in you, they don't even know why we're talking about all this, then I pray that that would be their next step, that they would step into a relationship with you um, or that they would step out in faith to pray for someone, a stranger on the street, that they would, they would hear your prompting, your voice, and, and would step out in faith and, and actually... Uh, you know, do something that they wouldn't have done yesterday. Or if, they, if, if they've never given, Father, that they would step out in faith and, and trust you with that. Whatever that next level is, Father, I just pray that faith would grow, that faith would rise, and that um, uh, we, would, we would begin to act like a son of God, like daughters of God. That we would follow your example and that we would heal sick bodies, that we would cast out demons, that we would raise the dead, that we would share your love with everyone we come into contact with. Let faith rise in this place. Start with me, Lord. In Jesus' name, amen. Okay, that's going to do it for this week. I really hope that this message was a blessing to you. If it was, why not subscribe to the podcast on iTunes and leave us a review. It really does help. Thanks and have a blessed week.